God bless you today. It's always a joy to have you here. And, you know, Your $1,000 cannot reproduce until it enters into a covenant with the soul. Baptist Church will picket their funeral. You can put that we will remind the living that you can still repent and obey. is heart of the matter where biblical Christianity meets American evangelicalism face to face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to participate in this, his ministry. May we uh, pray that he will be with you and us tonight as we try to sort out truth from error. Years ago, I met with a uh, man who became a good friend, Grant Palmer, down in Oceanside, California. He's a former LDS Institute instructor and author of several good books. The best, I think, being uh, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins. Uh, and I think of all books a Latter-day Saint could read, I think that book is probably the best. Grant Palmer was brought before a LDS church tribunal, a court of discipline for writing that book. And uh, he resigned from the church, I think, or, or was disfellowshipped, I can't remember which. Uh, most of you are probably aware that recently Grant Palmer went public with uh, a, a communication that detailed uh, some meetings he's been having with upper echelon uh, members of the church leadership, LDS church leadership, and what he reports is, is frankly astounding. I trust completely uh, Grant Palmer in his reporting. That's one thing about him. His books and their uh, recitations and quotes and everything are superb. So instead of paraphrasing the letter, I want to take some time to read it so we have an official version in our archives that people can go back and look at if they want. So here we go. Bear with my reading. We're going to go through and read the letter that Grant Palmer issued to the internet community. Ready? Here we go. In mid-October 2012, a returned LDS mission president contacted me to arrange a meeting. Several days later, he called again and said that a member of the first quorum of the 70 also wished to attend. He said the general authority would attend on condition that I not name him or repeat any stories that would identify him. He explained that neither of them, including the general authority's wife, believed the founding claims of the restoration, that means Mormonism, were true. He clarified that they had read, many, uh, read my book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, and had concluded that the LDS Church was not true, was not what it claimed to be. The General Authority went, on to, uh, went to the mormonthink.com website for information and there discovered my book. The mission president said he received my book from the General Authority. We have at this writing met three times. We first met on Tuesday, October 23rd, 2012, and again February 14th, 2013 at my house. On March 6th, on March 26th, 2013, we convened at the General Authority's house. <coughs> Excuse me. Upon entering my home for the first meeting, the General Authority said, quote, we are here 
to learn. I recognized him. He had been a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy for a number of years. He had served in several high-profile assignments during this period. The following are the more important statements made by the general authority during our first three meetings. We now meet monthly. He said that each new member of the Quorum of 12 Apostles is given $1 million to care for any financial obligations they have. I, I'm assuming that this is when they are made an apostle. This money gift allows them to fully focus on the ministry. He said that the overriding consideration of who is chosen is whether they are, quote, church broke, meaning will they do whatever they are told? He said the senior six apostles make the agenda and do most of the talking. The junior six are told to observe, listen, and learn, and really only comment if they are asked. He said that it takes about two to three years before the new apostle discovers that the church is not true. He said it took Dieter F. Uchtdorf a little longer because he was an outsider. He comes from Germany. Uh, he said they privately talk among themselves and know the foundational claims of the restoration are not true, but continue on boldly, quote, because the people need it, meaning the people need the church. When the mission president voiced skepticism, I guess at what the general authority said, and named blank as one who surely did believe, the general authority said, quote, no, he doesn't, end quote. The $1 million gift plus their totally obedient attitude makes it easy for them to go along when they find out the church is not true. For these reasons and others, he doesn't expect any apostle to ever expose the truth about foundational claims. When I asked the GA how he knew these things, he answered by saying that the Quorum of 12 today is more isolated from the Quorums of the 70s now because there are several of them. When only one quorum of the 70 existed, there was more intimacy. During his one-on-one -on -one assignments with an apostle, conversations were more familiar. He said that none of the apostles ever said to him directly that they did not believe, but that it was his opinion based on, quote, his interactions with them. Also, that none of the 12 want to discuss truth issues, meaning issues regarding the foundational claims of the church. He said that the apostles' lives are so completely and entirely enmeshed in every detail of their lives in the church that many of them would probably die defending the church rather than admit the truth about Joseph Smith and the foundations of the church. The general authority stated that my disciplinary action, uh, which would have occurred on the final Sunday of October 2010 had I not resigned, was mandated, ordered, approved by the first presidency of the church. I said that if the apostles know the church is not true and yet ordered a disciplinary hearing for my writing a book that is almost certainly true regarding the foundational claims of the church, then they are corrupt, even evil. He replied, that's right, end quote. The general authority said the church is like a weakened dam. At first, you don't see the cracks on the face. Nevertheless, things are happening behind the scenes. Eventually, small cracks appear, and then the dam will explode. When it does, he said, the members are going to be shocked and will need scholars, historians like me, to educate them regarding the Mormon past. 
The mission president and the GA both said they attend church every Sunday and feel like a hypocrite and trapped. The GA said his ward treats him like a king when he gives firesides and speaks to LDS congregations. They have high expectations of him. He would like to do more in getting the truth out besides raising a few questions when speaking and giving my book to others when feeling comfortable. Perhaps this is why he has reached out to me. The general authority is a man of integrity and very loving. Upon leaving each time, he always gives me a great big hug. Included, uh, somebody asked the question, do the following statements support the disclosures of the general authority? Listen to these things that apostles have said in the past. Apostle Boyd K. Packer said to Michael Quinn when interviewing him for a history position at BYU in 1976, quote, I have a hard time with historians because they idolize the truth. The truth is not uplifting. It destroys. Quoted in Faithful History, essays on writing Mormon history, and it gives the information there. Then it says, Thomas Stewart Ferguson, a California lawyer, church member and avid amateur archaeologist took the Egyptian papyri that was gifted to the church in 1967 to several Egyptologists at Berkeley, and as I recall, Brown University, and had them independently translated, all said the papyri were common funerary rites from the Book of the Dead. Ferguson then took their statements to Apostle Hugh B. Brown at that time, and after reviewing the evidence, Quote, with Brother Brown, he said that Brother Brown agreed with him that it was not scripture, that Hugh B. Brown did not believe the book of Abraham was what the church said it was. It gives the uh, citation there. Ferguson also said the same to Gerald and Sandra Tanner on December 2nd, 1970. This is what the Tanner said, quote, Mr. Ferguson had just visited with Mormon apostle Hubie Brown before coming to our house and said that Brown has also come to the conclusion that the book of Abraham was false. End of Grant Palmer's uh, news release on the internet. I think this communication suggests a number of important things. I know it's been out for a while, and I know everybody's aware of it. I wasn't even aware of it until uh, probably three, two or three weeks ago. But first, I think it suggests the best way for uh, people to reach the top leaders in Mormonism. And that is through people like Grant Palmer. Um, a man of reputation who is willing to make himself available to meet with them and speak to them about the truth. Obviously, they would never engage with a guy like me. Uh, and we've always known that, but perhaps more important is there are Christians out there who think that they can have relationships with the top brass of Mormonism, and somehow that is going to do something in bringing down or bringing the Mormon church to light, and it's just not so. No outsider, no Christian with his politically driven ministries or whatever is going to make a dent in the armor of LDS leadership. Why? Because those leaders in LDS North Temple will always look down on a Christian. They will always consider them a duped little puppet. And they will act like they are their friends, and they will act like there's this ecumenical uh, side to Mormonism that will buddy up with the other churches. But in the end, what they are is they use these Christian leaders as puppets in order to further their own cause. Additionally, the letter uh, unfortunately reveals what's at the heart of these LDS men. It's humanism. It's, it's man. That's at the center of it. Let me explain. In the letter, the general authority talks about the church cracking 
And Grant Palmer says, eventually small cracks appear and then the dam will explode. And when it does, the general authority says, the members are going to be shocked and will need scholars, historians like me to educate them regarding the Mormon past. Let me tell you right now, while I love Grant Palmer and his scholarship is superb, uh, when the dam breaks, those people are gonna need Christians and Christian churches to be in a position to help them understand what the hell has happened and to bring them to the true uh, Christ of love and faith and not of religion. His, see, and it just shows the, the mindset of that general authority. It's all intellectual. He thinks that they're gonna need scholarship to help them. They don't need scholarship. What, they, what they're gonna need is the true and living God. Um, Unfortunately, he didn't say this, and uh, he didn't say that, that they would need Christ. And that would have been really telling if the general authority would have said, you know, I hope that when the dam breaks, people will come to know who Jesus really is. But that's not what he said. And so it really reveals what's in their heart up at the top. Finally, I think the letter also pulls back the cover of uh, the roots of Mormonism and what keeps it thriving. In a way, it gives us a pretty clear picture of how Mormonism is really sort of like a Ponzi scheme. And uh, all, those who are at the very top get the payoff, giving hope to everybody down below looking up, thinking, you know, wow, maybe someday I will uh, also reach that point where I can be a, an apostle. And this is how it works. Having been LDS 40 years, being raised in it, cradle to 40 years of age, this is how the thing works. And I'll, this, let me give you an example. Suppose that there's a couple and they have a young son and the couple says, we're gonna raise our son to be a stalwart Mormon. So by the time the kid can crawl or, or toddle, he's up bearing his testimony that he knows the church is true. As a three or four-year-old, he's being, he's, his mom's whispering into his ear, I know the church is true. So he's being used that way. Then he also is taking every bit of uh, money that he gets, and for every dime he gets as a little kid, a penny is going into a tithing box, and another probably penny or two is going into the mission box. So as a child, he's being reared very young to serve the mission. He grows up, he becomes a Boy Scout, which is the church authorized program for the young man. And he, 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 he has a rite of passage in becoming a, a priesthood holder. And he begins to grow in the priesthood, he becomes a, a deacon and then a teacher and then a priest all but between the ages of 12 to 18. And then when he's 18, he gets to go on the mission. Let's say he's called to South America. Now the mission's a tremendous experience. I personally love the mission. It's full of adventure and excitement, and it does two things for the missionaries when they go out. It helps them to learn to serve the church with all they've got. At the same time, it teaches them to serve themselves. Now you might think, well, those missionaries are selfless. They're really not. They're out there and they're honing their skills and they're preparing themselves for exaltation to be a God. And, and this is one of the steps in it, okay? So uh, the guy comes back from his mission and he has kind of a twofold thing in his mind of what he's gonna do. He's going to serve the church with all he's got, and he's gonna promote himself to be able to get himself ready for the callings that will come. And so he gets married in the temple, and uh, he starts to uh, have children, and he has two things he runs by. Uh, uh, raising a celestial family, that means attending the temple, that means paying tithing, that means obeying the Sabbath day, it means wearing your garments, it means all the stuff that goes in it and also moving up in the church ranks. Because the higher you move up, 
the more respect you have and the more validation you get that you have value in the sight of God, that you have lived worthily. You've been able to answer the questions right and you're being promoted with, from within. As uh, he proves his allegiance through time and devotion, financial contributions, solid employment, faithful to his wife, and having a gaggle of good kids doesn't hurt, he will be promoted up the ranks of local leadership as sure as grass is green, those guys will move up. The more tearful devotion, sacrifice to the church, and money given, the higher the rank. And being popular with the people around never hurts either. Then our subject may be called to teach seminary, become an elders quorum president. He might be put in a bishopric, might be made a bishop, stake high council, maybe a stake president way up at the top, all determined by his life lived, by his devotion to the church, the money he has paid, and his popularity. But understand, the single most important factor to how he rises up is his allegiance to the church. What he's told, he does. Yes, bishop. Yes, bishop. Yes, stake president. Yes, yes, yes. I will go and do the things the Lord commands. So all this devotion has been toward local leadership at this point. It gives thousands and thousands of men at the lower ranks the churning up, hopefully, to climb up into the upper echelon. Uh, and really, they're only grist for the mill called Mormonism. Very few move from the lower level local leadership up to Salt Lake City as a general authority. Uh, if he does compete, he might be called to be an area president or whatever they call him now. And this is when things really start heating up. This is when the competition is tough because now you are getting closer to the top of that pyramid and there's little room for more people. And uh, who he knows does not hurt at this point. Maybe he's made uh, one of the 70 at this point. And once he's brought into the 70, uh, everything is about the church. He's paid out the nose. He's paid uh, in time and money and devotion. And he just hopes somebody will recognize him to become an apostle. And um, at this juncture, everything has to be in place. Every hand he's ever been dealt in his life has to be played perfectly. Every card he's been given has to be used properly. He has to use his do his assignments with the aplomb of a true business professional. There cannot be one hair out of place. He cannot lose his temper. He has to be completely measured in his outward appearances. And having the, the uh, right last name doesn't hurt either at this point. And then according to Palmer's meetings, once he is called to be an actual apostle, which automatically puts, puts him in the running to become the prophet who's the head of the whole pyramid scheme. I mean, that is the coup de grace of all positions in the Mormon church. Prophets, seer, revelator, pictures in every church building for the rest of history. I mean, that is it. Once, if you can get to that, and that comes through tenure and time. Um, so he becomes this beacon as an apostle to millions of men who hope to be like him. The sinister thing about this game is everybody is fodder. Everybody is grist for the mill. And by the time most active adults have served the mission, married in the temple, paid tithing, had kids, raised them in the young programs, you are so steeped in it, there's no chance of you coming out. Unless you fall and sin and do something where the whole community turns on you or you feel so guilty you can't, because you can't measure up, or your eyes open. You get a library card, as my friend Reed said, and you start reading about the history and you walk for that reason. What a sad, sinister regime. And this is one reason we have donated so much time to trying to expose it. 
If you want a lot more information, go to www.hotm.tv and you can watch a whole bunch of uh, videos that talk about that stuff from there. Before we go to prayer, I want to tell you about a genuine miracle. We have been talking about miracles of healing. We've been talking about prosperity gospel. I want to tell you, from my opinion, how miracles work. This is an author. Uh, authorized, authenticated, genuine miracle because it happened to me this week. Uh, uh, Let me share it uh, with you to the glory of God and how I think miracles work in this day and age. Uh, Since March, we have been trying to get this building that we are meeting in to also be used for our church. The city that we are in won't let us do it. They've had us jump through hoop after hoop after hoop. And they keep, as we go on, revealing new things they want. Maybe this is par for the course for for trying to do something like this. But they, I mean, they'll say, this is what you need. We do it. And then they say, you also need this. We'll do it. And they'll say, we also need this. Well, uh, we got an email on Thursday of last week. And we were told, without warning, listen to this. We were told that we had to now, after we've jumped through all the hoops, hire a mechanical engineer to come into this building, test the building's envelope as a means to mathematically prove that the ceiling and walls, windows, doors, exits by square footage, that the heating system in here is capable of keeping the occupants warm 36 inches above the ground and higher 68 degrees when it's eight degrees outside in the winter. Those were the instructions in this new email. We had never heard of anything before, and this is what they said. This is what has to be proven. So it would mean that these engineers come in and they factor in all these things, do all these computations. So after an hour of sighing and crying, uh, we called several mechanical engineers and learned it would run somewhere in 1,000, upwards of 3,000, depending on the mechanical engineer, and would take two to four weeks to get the computations done. That would be two or three or four more weeks of delay before we could get the letter stamped with them into the city. And I was just like, unbelievable. Well, Friday morning, I get a call from a guy. His name is Scott. And he was on the list of mechanical engineers I pulled from the, from the internet. And I, I didn't mean to call him because he was in a place called Taylorsville. Now, not being from Utah, I thought Taylorsville was near, was near a place called Eagle Mountain, far away. But I called him anyway. So he calls me back. Friday morning, hey, uh, you know, you sound a little desperate. I said, I am. Well, what do you need? And I told him, he said, well, let me come over. I said, you want to come over all the way from Taylorsville? He says, yeah, I'm right down the street. I I learned Taylorsville is right on the other side of the freeway. Don't ever ask me for directions. So uh, we have the guy and he shows up and he comes in and he's like, and he looks around, he takes out his paper, he starts marking things, he starts talking to himself. He's a total engineer guy. He gives me his card. He's the president of an engineering firm. And he walks about and then he comes outside and he says, um, what is this place? I, says, I said, well, we're trying to be a church, but it's a studio for, for television production. And uh, he said, oh, he said, uh, I'll have a letter for you in an hour and a half. And I said, an hour and a half? So you got to be kidding. He said, no, nah, you know, I, I've got this figured out. I've done this long enough. Your BTUs for that are plenty. You're not going to have to worry about a thing. I, thought, I can't believe it. I said, how much do we owe you? I'll do it for free. I'm like, for free? Uh, for free, an hour and a half versus three to $5,000 in four weeks? What, what is this about? Why are you doing this? I said that. He said, you know, I had a heart attack last year. And, and, and I was healed from the heart attack from the doctors in the hospital. And I've been thinking, I need to do something with my life. I've been given a second chance at life. And I walked in, I saw that cross and everything. And I was just like, 
Wow. So I, I just want to do it for you. So I'm dumbfounded. I'm driving the car. His secretary calls. And his secretary says, listen, hey, uh, come. We'll have the letter ready for you in about an hour. Uh, also, um, you can pay us then. And I said, well, your, your president said we didn't have to pay you. She breaks out in hysterics. Okay, you're funny. Uh, we'll, I'll figure out how much you owe and we'll go from there. I said, no, really, he did. She said, it's not possible. I said, it's possible. She said, he would never do, he would never give anybody anything free. I said, I'm telling you, I worked for him for seven years. He does not give anything free. He said it would be free. And so then she calls, she goes, let me check. She calls back. She says, okay, we'll see you in an hour. She didn't say anything. I showed up, letter in hand, stamped, letterhead, all things cleared, take it to the city. That is a miracle. That is a miracle. That is how God works in our lives. Praise God. Nothing to do with me conjuring up the faith. We simply go forward. We do what we are trying to do. If, if, if we had gotten an engineer who said it's gonna take four weeks and it's gonna cost you 500 or $1,000 or whatever, we would have had to do it. You just keep going forward. God knows how he's gonna work things for you. He knows where, where it's gonna work the best. He knows when to step in, how to step in, and that's what you have faith in. That's what you trust in when you're looking for the miracles in your Christian life. Let's go and talk about prosperity teachings, uh, but first let's have a prayer. Father God, oh, uh, and this prayer, by the way, is uh, dedicated to Alan, who loves when I pray uh, before the program. Lord, God in heaven, uh, we seek you and need you in our lives. And we lift up our problems and our anger and our uh, hatred and our sin nature and all the stuff that we're about as as humans, and we lift it up to you who took care of it, and then we turn and we walk in faith. So we pray that we will be people of faith. We pray you'll be with our volunteers tonight who have given so much of their time and energy, all those people who have helped with the building and given their time and talents uh, just so selflessly and in so many different ways, Lord. We thank you for them, and we pray that you will reach these things that we are putting out there in the electronic world of media to your good use in Jesus' name, amen. Prosperity teachers, you can almost draw a big, thick black line between the culprits who teach this crap and true biblical uh, teachers. Uh, what's that line? On the prosperity teacher side at the core. So we have, we have the dark line, we have prosperity teachers, and we have people who teach true biblical Christianity. Prosperity teachers at the core have self-sufficiency, human empowerment, and the call that all human beings need to come to terms with the God that is within them. That is really at the core of prosperity teaching. Uh, this idea is as old as Satan who wanted to be as God, and it's regurgitated throughout all types of philosophy and religions. Let's look at a few quotes so I can show you how it comes out. Kenneth Hagin, prosperity teacher, said, God made us in the same class of being that he is himself. Hmm. And who we are, we're Christ. As much an incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth, in God's class, God's. Okay, Kenneth Copeland, you don't have God in you, you are one. Uh, the Maharishi Mahesh said, be still and know that you are God. When you know that you are God, you will begin to live Godhood. That's in Meditations of the Maharishi Yogi. 
uh, popular when the Beatles were around. Uh, White Witch Margot Adler said, we are gods and might as well get good at it. That's from that ever popular book, Drawing Down the Moon, 1986. The LDS prophet Joseph Fielding Smith said, Mortality is the testing or proving ground for exaltation to find out who among the children of God are worthy to become gods themselves. And the Lord has informed us that few be there that find it. Boy, that isn't twisting scripture. I don't know what it is. On the other side of this thick black line, we have those guys. We have believers who say from all socioeconomic backgrounds, from uh, all psychographic backgrounds, from all genders, from all lifestyle walks, all cultures, we have people who walk by faith, trust in God Almighty to bestow or not bestow blessings of health and wealth upon them. And quite frankly, these Christians know that suffering is a huge part of being a Christian. Now that is a really miserable word. No one wants to talk about suffering in this day and age, especially from the Christian community. We want things to be light and easy. We don't want to talk about suffering. But all you got to do is look at the model Jesus gave. I mean, he's the guy who came down. What was his life like? Look at the apostles. What happened to them? Look at the early martyrs. Look at the Anabaptists, which I'm totally into these days. I'm going to recommend a book to you next week. I mean, look at their lives for Christ. Look at the life of Mother Teresa. Look at the life that she lived. It wasn't one of luxury. It wasn't one of prosperity. It was one of helping other people to their own time and dime sometimes. Prosperity teachers say or infer that suffering, financial or physical suffering, is beneath a God in embryo. And since Jesus came and paid the price of sin, suffering is not the destiny of true Christians. They must not read the New Testament. Look at the life of Christ. He had no place to rest his head. I do not see the prosperity of Jesus. I see a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I do not see his 12 apostles who did their life's work after Jesus paid the price with his stripes and died on the cross and ascended. I do not see their lives being one of joy. I see uh, them, uh, I don't see them living high on the hog. I don't see them making prosperity for themselves. Instead, every one of them suffered as will every Christian. It's a biblical promise. And let me tell you something, the closer you draw to the king in your life and the more he becomes you and, and, and you try to uh, follow him in love, the more difficult things get, the more rejection you will get from the people and things of this world. So no one likes that. So they clamor for false teachers who say, you can be wealthy. You can, you can have those teeth in your mouth that aren't there. Just, just say it and it will come into being. Let's go to the word. What does it say? Romans 8, 16. Listen to what it says. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Listen, if so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. Paul continues, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. If so be that you suffer with him. Now listen, it's not you go out and you make enemies by being an idiot Christian. You love. And when you truly love, that manifests itself in a number of ways, includes sharing the truth. 
when you love, you will suffer as Christ suffered when all he did was love and share the truth. Uh, Philippians 1.29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. That means when you wanna go out and, and uh, you're a married man, you wanna bang some chick, sorry, and uh, you suffer for Christ's sake and say, I'm not gonna bang that chick. Uh, my body, my flesh wants to, but Christ doesn't want me to. And you suffer, and, and that's what it means. It means dying to the self-will. It doesn't mean, you know, being in this day and age, being beaten, uh, you know, like the Romans did, but it means dying to your own desires and living for his desires. Why do we do that? That's what he did, remember? He said, not my will. Hey, look, it, if, this, if this cup can pass, Father, let's do it. But not my will, yours be done. So he gave his will to the Father, we give our will to his. And what did he say his will was? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. We have to die to our will when it comes to loving other people. Sometimes we wanna kill them, but you have to die to that urge, just like instead of banging them, you might wanna kill them. But you say, no, I'm not gonna do that. I am going to love because that's Christ's will and I love him. You see, to the uh, church at Thessalonica, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 3, 4, for verily... When we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass and you know. Why do we suffer tribulation? That means difficulty, sorrows, disappointments as Christians. Listen to what Romans says. But we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope expectation makes us not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which God has given us. See, by and through difficulty, suffering, tribulation, and God is able to take weak, uh, saved baby Christians and turn them into heirs of Christ as they embody what Christ embodied. There's a difference between that and us being God's. It's, it's us being Christ in flesh as he was in flesh. That's what it is. And, and our spirit then conforms to his will. And so God does that through tribulations and patience and all these things. And it works through to us then being able to handle the difficulties uh, that face us. Health and wealth uh, philosophy speaks counter to this process. It says, no, 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 you shouldn't be suffering. You, should, you have the power to create your wealth and you have power to create prosperity and complete health in your body, okay? Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12 says, it's a faithful saying. For if we be dead with him, meaning crucified in our lives in the flesh with Christ, we shall also live with him. Again, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Why does scripture talk about us taking up our cross? How come it doesn't say, okay, you're believers now, go take up your banquet, take up your Rolls Royce, Take up your gaudy, whatever you have, white jacket thing that those guys wear. Why, why doesn't he say take up that stuff? He says take up a cross, an old wooden cross. If believers have the power and ought to speak prosperity and comfort, material blessings and healings in their existence, why does James say in James chapter five, take my brethren, the prophets of old who have spoken in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering affliction 
and of patience. He goes on and says some other things there. But he says, look at the Old Testament prophets. Take them as an example. Use them as an example of what you're doing because that is how you walk the Christian walk. If believers are supposed to command their will to be done by producing prosperity and healing, why does the writer of Hebrews say, for we have need of patience that after we have done the will of God, which is to love, we might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and not tarry. What that's saying is, listen, you do the will of God. You suffer not to go after your neighbor's wife. You suffer not to beat the face in of a guy who's driving you crazy on the road. You suffer not to take that super fifth drink of straight vodka because you can't handle the stresses of life. And instead you turn to prayer. You do these things and you're doing the will of him. And, And what that says there is if you do that, in short time, God will show himself and he will make solutions for you. But first comes this trials and tribulations that creates patience within us. Was the Apostle Paul, who was also a recipient of Christ's stripes, a weak in faith? Certainly he, did, certainly he didn't live a prosperous life. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians about him. Paul says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths off. I mean, the guy says he was killed at one time. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, saved one. Five times he was beaten uh, with uh, the rod, 39 times. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and day I have been in the sea. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, that's the worst one, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger, in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. That's how Paul described his life. Sound like prosperity teaching and health and wealth to you? Let's wrap this up by looking at the passages. Actually, we're gonna do this next week. We're gonna take the passages that prosperity teachers use and we're gonna explain them and then we'll wrap up this uh, hoary little section on prosperity teachings, uh, which does not belong in the body of Christ at all. Let's open up the phone lines. We are trying to take calls. Let's do it again, 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. While the operators are taking your call, Derek, our cameraman, astute and trained at AFI School of Fine Camera Arts, he's about to show you the inside of the studio. We're trying to get the city to let us meet in. Derek, give it a whirl. Those are chairs over there. (laughs) That's the cage where we put all people who can't get along. That's a very important symbol. Those are works of art depicting biblical things. That's a ladder for me to climb up and hang myself when times get tough. At the back, we have people running about. That's where the camera, that's where the telephones are. Those are the bathrooms the city are making us put in. Here's Kelly, a fine artist. She did these window coverings and they give us the three principles, faith, hope, and love by which we live. And then Derek is coming back around. That is a red door. That's a really red door. And then, hey, we're back. All right, do we, do we have any calls? Operators, on, we have a little bit of a, of a phone problem, but we have a call coming through right now and it's gonna be put up on the screen, 801. Nine, 
No. Nine one eight zero four six nine. All right, here we go. Hello. Hello. Are you there? Technology, Satan runs it. Are you there, Satan? Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> All right, what's going on? We're gonna to try to hear you. Okay, I, I just want to say that I, I love your show and I think it's great what you're doing. I was just looking for some advice from you. Yeah. So uh, um, I'm evangelical Christian. And, uh, dating a Mormon girl. Um, she goes to college in, in uh, Utah. And uh, right now, uh, we're having a bit of a rough time. We're seeing if we can go any further in our relationship. Okay. And she, and she is, uh, we're both trying to look for the And uh, I, she gave me, she gave me a, a copy of the Book of Mormon um, to, to look, to find if her church is true, even, even though I know it's not. But um, I was just wondering what would be the source to uh, give her so that she could read and uh, understand that it's false. You know, uh, we were talking earlier, uh, Tim, about Grant Palmer's book, An Insider View of Mormon's Origins. Uh, it's, it's really well written. Uh, it goes straight to facts about priesthood and the con that Joseph Smith pulled. Uh, and it, it's not, uh, it's well written, but it's not attacking. And she, she'll read it. Uh, it's somebody who's still a member of the church. And uh, I think that would probably be the most um, kind. Uh, I was a born-again Mormon that we have. I think it's kind, too, but it's a little bit more uh, harsh in some areas because of my supposed humor. But Grant Palmer's book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, is a great book to go after for somebody who's in the church. Oh, okay. Uh, hey, listen, why are you dating... I, I, what was that? Why are you dating a Mormon? <laughs> uh, well... <laughs> Uh, my dad said that I, we, we started dating in high school, and my dad said that I couldn't, but then I, uh, we just kind of, <laughs> I just kind of did anyway, and then it's, it's, it's gotten, uh, more serious. When so. your dad's gonna get it, you don't forbid. Your dad should have said, go date her, man, but, you know, when you marry her, you're gonna discover they don't have female parts. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but when are dads going to get it? Why do you make something forbidden? And it's, it's instantly what people do. So is she an active, faithful Latter-day Saint? What was that? Is she an active, faithful Latter-day Saint? Uh, yes, she is. And are you an active, faithful Christian? Yes, I am. Wow. And you're in love? Uh, yeah, kind of. Kind of in love. I wonder what she would say. Well, I got to tell you, you know, she is trying everything to get you to see the light. Has she tried to recruit you? Yeah, oh yeah, they're all trying to recruit me up here. Yeah, I bet they are. Well, uh, you know, stick to your guns, dude. Introduce her to uh, our show. See if you can find one where I'm, I'm reasonably uh, normal and affable. And uh, show her the show. See if that will help. All right, will do. All right, Tim. Thanks for calling. Uh, thanks, John. Okay, bye. Bye.
We're working things out with the technical stuff. This is not easy. There's more involved than just the phone call, so have patience. While they're working on the next call. Uh, several years ago, uh, no, actually several months ago, I received an email from someone named Angie, and she explained how she was leaving Mormonism, and, uh, and that books from Philip Yancey, who's a Christian writer, really influenced her about grace and love and how to deal with people. And she went on to tell me how off the mark I am with my methods. Uh, she used scripture to prove it, and she shared anecdotal stories from Yancey's books about how this is how you need to approach Latter-day Saints. Now, she's coming out of Mormonism, and she's saying, I would be embarrassed to show your program to anybody in Mormonism. I understand why. I get that. It's the type of approach that the Latter-day Saints don't want. Uh, her approach was loving, but she earnestly was concerned about my acerbic methods when LDS callers called in, and I would go after them with everything I got. She signed off. We wrote back and, and said, you know, I wrote back to her. I said, I can never figure out what you guys want me to do. You write and say that my methods are no good, that it's not loving, it's not kind, it's going to turn people off. I know that. Uh, it's seed planting. I also know it's effective. Not with everybody, probably not with most, but it is effective with some. We have the emails to prove it. Some people hate me so much or like me that they will investigate what we're saying and they actually come to, to truth. But what we do know is this. There's a lot of methods that work in reaching other people. Um, lots of, of methods to try to get to people to understand the truth. And I embrace most of them, you know. Uh, the Bible's full of examples of what we do here. Uh, Jesus, read Matthew 24. John the Baptist, read how they talked about the people who were involved in their religion. They were all Jews. Listen to how Jesus talked to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Listen to how he talked to people who were trying to con. Being direct, even caustic at times, is not necessarily a bad thing. My approach is the approach of, I love you so much, you're in the street, you're about to get hit by, the car, uh, by a car. Get the hell out of the street! That is my approach. Is it loving for me to do that? Yes, because you're going to get run over. You want me to be, you're in the street, now come my way. And it just doesn't work in that situation. So that's my approach. Would you just get off my back? Well, what happened was she sent us another uh, uh, email today. And it said, I saw your interview with Mormon Stories with John Dellen. Uh, they liked that because I wasn't doing a television show. That's another thing. If I was just doing Mr. Nice Guy television, who's going to watch? Very few people. So you got to grab an audience. And so we do some things in order to keep the excitement going and the criticisms going. But in my heart, when I meet individuals, I'm not like that, unless they're missionaries. And, and so, uh, 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 but she says, listen, I admit that I was just coming out of the Mormon church and I was afraid of, of how to reach people. And I now realize that the truth is what gets them. Because when you try to make friends and you're trying to just uh, have dialogue, you know, when it comes to Mormonism and Christianity, dialogue is a really tough, you got to have a really open-minded Mormon who's willing to truly, honestly dialogue with you in order for that to work. But most of them are too mixed up for that to happen. Uh, we have Matt from Dallas, Texas. Matt, you're on Heart of the Matter. Please, Lord, a miracle. I'll embrace prosperity teachings no. if you... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, you're on, Matt. Hi, Sean. I got to say, I like this show. I love the studio, man. And uh, congrats on that. Awesome, uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, my question for you was, uh, uh, basically, I'm in a situation where I, I've got a, a friend who's a Mormon. He's staying at my place. Um, 
uh, you know, a couple nights a week without a hardship. Um, well, I started, you know, talking to them, uh, just trying to witness a little bit. Um, I wasn't sure exactly how to do it. Um, I started out just trying to get down the basics and, you know, uh, bring it back to the Bible. So, um, I was, you know, very first thought, at first day I did this, uh, I just went ahead and brought up some passages. Probably not the best way to do it, but just went ahead and brought up some passages about hell and, and you know, uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, how, you know, the Mormon belief doesn't necessarily include uh, the same as the Christian hell. Um, so I, I talked a little bit about that. Then uh, last week I talked a little bit about um, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, you know, uh, how we're not going to be given marriage in heaven. And, uh, um, you know, uh, what, I'm, what I'm asking here is I want to know, uh, first of all, what's, uh, what are some good passages for, uh, for, that I could get them? I've got some here I can write it down. Okay. And also, um, I'm having a little bit of trouble with his responses to um, uh, to my method of witnessing. Basically, when I try and bring up the Bible, he's telling me, "Well, you know, it's kind of you know, he's real wishy-washy about it." But and he basically tells me, "Hey, it's not uh, uh, you know, he can't really trust it." It's kind of what he's getting. And he doesn't say that outright. But, you know, it's just it's kind of wishy-washy. Yeah. So I tried to challenge him and say, look, I want you to prove the Book of Mormon using the Bible. And since that time, you know, he came in, he hasn't, uh, he, he said that he didn't have enough time to go in and, you know, get the verses. But uh, I'm going to, you know, I think I'm going to try to stick to that and just get him to dive into the Word. Um, is that a good way to do it? What, what do you suggest? If he's willing to do it, I mean, God's Word doesn't return void. When you lay it out there, that seed germinates who knows how long in time. But if he's willing to sit down with you, the thing is, is to sit down with it and read it together. That's very, very effective. So I would read John chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, and I would ask him to explain that, those passages. I would go to Romans, uh, uh, I would go to uh, Hebrews chapters 9, 10, 11. And I would read those together and say, explain this to me, how what this is saying about Jesus being our high priest and how it relates to everything with priesthood. And then explain this to me, how you have a priesthood now. I would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a long one. Within that, if you understand Mormonism, there are probably seven topics that Mormonism claims that 1 Corinthians 15, if understood with a sound exegetical view, you will be able to understand, uh, show him how all of those claims are incorrect, including, uh, well, I won't go into the includings. Read 1 Corinthians 15 that way. Uh, at, pull out the passages where uh, John dedicates to showing that Jesus was God. Uh, from John 1.1 okay. 1, 1, all through the other places and say, was Jesus God or not? Uh, think, yeah, that, I, sounds, that sounds good. Now, what about, because I've, you know, I've watched a few uh, episodes and I've been doing a little research on my own. There's a lot of archaeological and historical evidence. I just felt like bringing some of that stuff up would be uh, maybe you know, not, uh, not mean-spirited, but, you know, it just might seem... Uh, like I'd be attacking his faith instead of doing what I'm trying to do, which is, you know, just point him to Jesus. Yeah. Do you agree with you or, or, should, or do you think that? What do you think? Depends on the person. Uh, here's the deal. Why someone leaves Mormonism is almost as important as if they leave Mormonism at all. If they leave because they find that the whole thing is a sham, before they find out who the true Jesus is relative to, to his word, then you have people who go to atheism and you're going to find your friend drinking scotch one night and not wanting to take off a bunny suit. I mean, he's going to lose his mind. 
And so yeah, it, it, it's important to yeah, get... Wait, wait, hold on, hold on a second. Do what? <laughs> Forget that last part. Uh, but it's important to get him to understand the, that there is truth at the same time getting him to understand the lies he's been given, and it's a fine balance. But you know, you're you're a good friend who, who's hey, concerned. I'm, I'm sorry, Sean, I'm having a little bit of a trouble connecting real quick. Yeah, I'm gonna call it's back not a little you. bit, okay? You're gonna call, don't call back. Did he, is he gone? Hey, hey, wait, wait, hey, can you hear me? I can't, I can hear you fine, Matt. Okay, okay, I appreciate that. Um, hey, you, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I got a question about the evangelical. Um, do you take a question about the evangelical Christianity as well? Oh, sure. Please. Okay. Um, and this is not, uh, I, I haven't, you know, done any research on this yet, but I, I, uh, I'm watching one of your other programs, I, I, I know that you don't really believe in the tithe. Uh, what, uh, uh, if I could ask, what's the uh, reason for that? And what, you know, do you believe that Christians ought to donate money, uh, you know, to the, Christ, to, to the church, or do you think that that's not a biblical commandment? We're going to cover tithe. We're going to cover tithing in two weeks, Matt. But let me say this: if a okay, okay. I appreciate it, Sean. I'll uh, be watching the show. Thanks, man. Oh, is there's a delay? Is there a delay with him? We got another phone call right now. We're going to be talking to Mike from. New York. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Mike? 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 Boy, you have a very handsome voice. Are you talking to me, Sean? I, is this Mike? Yeah, I can barely hear you. Uh, you know, you talk and then hang up. <laughs> yeah, and now, and now the stream is gone, too. On my computer. Uh, we're back. In like 2002? Yeah. And I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, how they're Old Testament believers, Old Testament, and they rely on that heavily, I think, and, uh, and they don't really mention the New Testament so much as far as who they are in Christ and who they are as believers. They don't say, you know, I'm crucified with Christ, and, and nevertheless, I live, this is what it says in Galatians. And, and that, that perfection, they're, they're trying to reach perfection. And I'm just wondering, do they even read the New Testament? You know, I, I don't remember reading it. Uh, are they just, you know, just totally focused on the man and doing good, or seemingly doing good? And I just want to get your take on that. Thanks, Mike. Uh, pretty much they are centered on doing good, in making themselves better, in, uh, in performing in the flesh, in morally correcting their direction in life. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but you're right, they do miss the whole New Testament, especially the Pauline epistles. They miss the Pauline epistles' message of salvation by faith uh, uh, and faith alone. And so they try to earn their, uh, their salvation, like Romans 10 says, that they go about trying to establish their own righteousness the way the Jews did in the Old Testament. So they are very much an Old Testament church. The Book of Mormon is very much a First and Second Kings book, and you can see how it influenced Joseph Smith in writing it. So you're, you're, uh, what you see in Mormonism is very true, and that's one of the sad things about it, because if you go about trying to establish your own righteousness, you're screwed. You're never going to do it. 
And so they're on the hamster wheel of perfection and they're running and running and running and panting and panting and doing everything they can and yet they're never ever gonna be satisfied and it's the saddest thing. Mm -hmm. So it's a good point, Mike, really appreciate it. Thanks for watching out there in New York. And listen, if you want Thank the you. sound to be better, send us $4 billion <laughs> because that's what it's going to take to get this thing right. <laughs> we have people who are striving very hard and they give all their heart. They're here early and they're tinkering and they're soldering and, and they, they look like mad scientists and, and they're doing everything they can. This is really tough stuff and, and we operate the best we can. So please don't give up on us. We will archive all these shows. That's another thing. A lot of people are saying, where are the shows? We're working on getting them archived. One of them is up now under Evangelical Christianity on the new website. We are trying to get all of them up, so be patient with us. One final, quick final uh, email, and we'll end it. On a previous show, Sean, you gave the story of two neighbors, two guys living out in the desert. And what I did was I said, there's one guy, and he's lived just a hellacious life. He's a bum. He's a creep. He's a, he's a, he doesn't pay his child support. He's a drug addict. He's a whore, whatever that is. He's all those things, okay? And then we have another guy, and he's lived just a really good life. I mean, really good life, all right? But he, this other guy doesn't believe in Jesus, and neither does the bad guy. Well, a 747 is coming toward the house. I explained this on another show, and the 747 is going to hit both houses. And I say, before the 747 hits, hits, the bad guy realizes, man, my life's been a waste, I've done nothing. I'm a loser. I'm a sinful guy. I wonder what's going to happen with me. And, and learns about Jesus somehow in that second. And he, he asked Jesus sincerely to forgive him, become Lord of his life. The other one says, well, I've lived a great life. I've done all good things. God, you're going to have to accept me. This Jesus thing I just don't get. And the plane hits him. The bad guy goes to heaven. The good guy goes to hell. And people freak over that little example. They hate it. They can't stand it. Now, the good guy goes to a very lesser place in hell. Hell has many levels. He lived a good life. There's the real demonic people. They go to the lower levels, according to the Bible. I'm just saying what it says. But he still goes to hell because he rejected Jesus. This guy who's lived a bad life, he goes to heaven because of his faith on Christ. Well, this guy says, what I want to know, and maybe others would be interested as well, is what do you say to the guy who does not squander his life, at least not in the usual sense, but squanders it trying to do the right thing? But God continually blanks upon him with poor health for him and his family. He has financial difficulties, family difficulties, basically one thing after another with no let up whatsoever his entire life long. Doesn't this guy have a right to hate God for everything that God did to him? The drunkard expects to waste his life, but the guy who tries to do right tries to work and support family and ends up at the same place as the drunkard at the end of his life due to continual reversals. I think he is totally justified in hating God. You should do a show on that. Hey, it's a great question. How does that work? Well, let me just answer it this way, the best that I can. God is not the reason for the, the suffering. It's a fallen world. It's a bad place. Satan is the, is the king of this place. God interjects the best he can using free will, but he's there with his arms outstretched. He so loved the world, he sent his own son, and he came here, God in flesh, and he died to, to make amends for all this crap. There's no promise, there's no promise that your life's gonna be good because you accept his solution. It's still a fallen place. God does not want children to be raped. 
He does not want drunkards to be wasting their life. He doesn't want people to be plagued with disease. But he is here to use all these things to bring us to him. For whatever reason, these things are happening to your life. Your call, your decision is to say, do I look to God and say, hey, I don't know why, but you show me. Or is it to be bitter and angry and say, screw you, God. I mean, there's the choice. Everybody has it. Everyone. You say, this guy has had bad family life. What about people who are born with spina bifida? What about people who are born with cleft palates and, and they're disfigured their whole life? Or, or any of these horrible things that are a result of the fall? Do they, many of them will look to God and say, I hate you. But some of them will look and say, help me understand. And he does. That's the question. Which way are you going to look? To God to help you understand and save you within it? Or to bitterness? That's your call. Hey, join us next week as we continue with Prosperity Teachings here on Heart of the Matter. Yeah.